So, uh, thoughts, comments, questions, ideas. How are these landing with you, these precepts? Lots there? A lot of theory is in what thought. They're thought provoking. That as far as the precepts, you're on. As far as the precepts are, go, it's not just about being with people who are sick or dying. It's really about all of our lives. Yes. <laughs> you know, these these are applicable to many situations. Yeah. Principles for living. Yes. But people want that hospice to teach about caring for the dying. So let's we apply these to that. Please. Um, One more microphone coming your way. I've had the opportunity to, to study these by listening to the CDs that you brought, and I just wanted to recommend them. I've listened to them multiple mm. times. It's a really incredible instruction that elaborates and tells a lot of stories that go with the, these precepts, and you can... You can study it over time, and it really sinks in. It's, it's very valuable. Thank you for the shameless plug. <laughs> I brought about six of them. Last I checked, looked like there was only one or two left. If, there, if I run out today, you can get them on our website. And it's about three hours of teachings about being a companion to somebody. Yeah. What are they it's called Being a Compassionate Companion. Oh, okay. We've got a demo there. Thank you. What else? Please. Well, Microphone. I, I just, I just, uh, I just didn't want. I want people to do that for me now before I'm dying. <laughs> I want them. That's what I said. That that was my big thing. That wouldn't it be nice if we could all do that right now? Then we'd be in such good practice for right. dying folks. This on? One thing that we haven't brought up in which I think I think about as practice for the human situation is our caregiving of our animals. And in the caregiving of animals, um, I have several. And the fears that come up with attachment to an animal are very, very close, if not even greater than the, the things that come up with a human being. And in addition to that, there is the decision-making with regards to euthanasia that we do not have. Uh, we have only with lower animals, uh, so to speak. So I was wondering if, rather than just um, keep comments going, I was wondering if you could relate to the caregiving of animals, if that is, because in Buddhist tradition we are not allowed to kill another living being, Mm -hmm. um, to be strict on that point, but nevertheless we find ourselves where we 
do make that decision. And for many of us, I know what it would be for me, it would be uh, heartrending. Sure. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could uh, make some comments with, uh, as it relates to sure. applying Buddhist practice to animal caregiving and sure. uh, uh, so-called hospice care for animals. Sure. I'm a great lover of the non-human world. I actually prefer non-human creatures much of the time. I know. Um, I, uh, right before I started doing hospice work, accompanied a friend when she put down her cat. And um, it was a profound experience. And uh, a few years after that, I adopted a dog from the SPCA. It was my first dog. I'd had one when I was a girl. And um, he came to hospice with me and to the hospital. His name was Bosco, and he was a little Boston Terrier who was very entertaining because he snorted like a pig. (laughs) And the patients knew he was there, not because they saw him, because he was only this high, but they heard him under their beds cleaning up their droppings of food. (laughs) That was close, yeah. And um, uh, he started getting old, you know, gray, cataracts, um, uh, peeing indoors at night because he was too senile to kind of get with it. Um, And uh, I told him... um, you don't have to do a hospice death just because I work in hospice. You know. um, so I do th- believe there's a way to communicate with animals to let them know it's okay to leave us. You know. And he did that, just that. He died quickly. Um, and hospice taught me to really honor death. When somebody dies with us at hospice, the first thing that we do uh, because people, we train them, and they say, what do I do when somebody dies? What do I do when somebody dies? You know, And our instruction is to sit down. You know, that This is a sacred event. There's really nothing to do immediately, but we need to just take in this truth. So when I found him, um, I just sat down with him. You know, um, And then I did what we do at the hospice, which was to bathe him and surround him with beauty and invite people to say goodbye to him. And so I had, a, I had a wake, if you will, from my dog. I put him on the living room table, covered him with bones and flowers and pictures, and about a dozen people that loved me and or him uh, came and, you know, and uh, I really slowed down, and then the next day I took care of his body, you know. Um, in medical decision-making around the end of life, um, I can offer one model Um, and that um, is the weighing of benefits and burdens when we have to make difficult decisions and this applies to uh, pets is is the benefit of intervention enough to compensate for the burden of continuing life or is the benefit of ending life greater than the burden of continuing life So, for instance, if it's a lot of money or drugs or intervention and then the animal is still unable to walk or relieve themselves or um, receive any type of affection, 
um, or run and play. And, there's, and it's a very personal decision, whether it's for a person or an animal. Um, uh, what, when do those things, when does one outweigh the other? And um, in the Catholic Church, um, there is the, um, the principle of not taking life, that um, that would be a sin. And yet in the hospital setting, even in a Catholic hospital, and I know this because I work there, uh, the priest would often say to a family, um, the compassionate act, the loving act, is to allow this person to die. And it's okay if we don't give your mother water or, height or food. And then the family would say, well, that's wrong, that's a sin, we're killing her. And the priest would respond, no, her cancer is killing her. Her old age is here now. This debilitating um, diabetes is, you know, and so to really remember that we're not, even though we have the capacity for intervention, we are not the hand of God, so to speak, and that uh, it's up to us just to weigh the benefits and burdens and often, whether it is with an animal or a person, to say that uh, a disease process will take its course and... um, I think with animals, it's a little tricky because we can't always communicate. We, we don't know, you know, um, what they would want. My personal belief, and this is again when we decide what do we believe about life and death, is that that four-legged, finned, winged creatures have no problem with death. You know, they have no ego. You know, they don't have as much preference as we have, so to speak. You know, um, and. Uh, But all of the um, care that we would give to another person, we absolutely can give to an animal as well. And so Bosco was laid out in state, and I had a good goodbye. And then um, I even took him um, directly to the crematory and chose to pay extra to be able to put him in the oven, you know, the chamber, and start the flames. And then um, I crushed his bones myself. And it was a very cathartic kind of involvement with his death. I remember kind of pounding them and being mad at him, you know, like. Uh, um, uh, sort of go through the process completely, if you will. Yeah. And it was very kind of him to not drag out his dying process. Because it can be very draining and difficult. The decision making, is it time? Is it worth it? And the, in my experience of medical professionals is it's their job to let us know what the medical options are you know and so they always kind of have well we could do this treatment and this treatment and again I had to remember it's helpful to remember this is not a medical event this is a a bigger picture and I was a wreck too you know it was really hard the loss of a pet um It's a hard thing. So a few weeks later, I got a puppy. Other thoughts or uh, questions? She's got the microphone. You can go first then. My, I have a question. The question, hello? Yeah, you're okay. on. 
um, I've heard that if the living living people are hanging on to the dying person, that they're sort of trying to stay alive for that person or that family or peoples or children or whatever. And I didn't know if that was really true. And my question is sure. that. Um, well, in general, like birth, uh, death is a great mystery around time and uh, who's to be there and who's not. Um, and we sure like to make up a lot of stories about death and dying you know and it gets a little hard to test myth from reality Uh, there was a movie uh, a couple years ago called 21 grams you know around this idea that when somebody dies they lose 21 grams of weight and uh, there's a program shot in Oakland called Mythbusters they called us up and asked if they could put a bed on a scale and then when somebody died see if the person got 21 grams lighter we said no Um, so basically my answer is I don't know and statistically at our hospice with 30 to 40 people a year for 15 years what we've seen is most people die during the night. So, in my imagination, based on my values or personality or what have you, I think maybe dying is a very, for some people, a very private journey. It's ultimately a, a singular journey. Um, so that I know for a fact that a lot of people die during the night or the minute the family member leaves the room to go to the bathroom, they die, you know. Um, so I, I know those statistics and what that means I'm a little reluctant um, I'm uh, pretty you know in, the, in people that do end of life care and teach and kind of write books um, I'm pretty conservative around saying this is like this and that's like that yeah. but other people would say yes that's true or that you need to tell them it's okay to go. You know, I don't know if that's true or not. Did you have a question, Sally? <coughs> or comment? Actually, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but uh, when you were talking about what you said with your dog, you bathed him and uh, and and just sat with him. What? what, what well, actually, my question is double. How do you deal with the like the medical authorities wanting to take the body away right away? Uh-huh. Right. And sure. and um, do you is like does the CD describe a, a process that you use for being with the person sure. after they've died? Sure. Yeah. Um, She's a medical professional. Okay. Go ahead. I'm an ICU nurse and have been present for the death of many children. Um, What we try to do is allow the family to be there as long as they need to be. Um, There are some exceptions, and 
I think they, in fact, may be trying to change state laws. But if someone dies as a result of an accident, like, for instance, a drowning or a car accident, or there is question of, like, something that resulted in murder, like child abuse, um, the coroners come and take the bodies, and they usually don't want the family there, and they usually want to take it as soon as they can. And um, there has been a movement to try to get the laws which would allow family to be at the bedside longer. Um, and I don't know the status of those laws. And it looks like there's some other medical people here who could share their experiences. Uh, if somebody dies in the home, um, you have a lot of time. And people just don't know this. You don't have to call right away. Uh, there's a difference between a pronouncement of death and a removal of the body. You know, so you can have a pronouncement of death with your hospice nurse and still leave the body. You know, like we keep a body up to three days from the Buddhist tradition of not disturbing the body for three days. And you can do this with dry ice under the torso. There's some swelling, some odor at some times, depending on the disease process. But we have done that. You can also do a home funeral and go directly from the home to the cemetery or the crematory. You don't have to involve or go to a funeral home. A lot of funeral homes now are very progressive, particularly in this area, that they will they'll do a lot for you, you know, in your own home. Like a woman recently, her husband died at home in the middle of the night and the funeral home took care of the death certificate um, so that she could stay at home for two days and not have to get busy with other things. And then, you know, after a day or two, people are usually ready, you know. Um, and in the hospital, again, um, there, I think there is greater and greater sensitivity with professionals that this is a sacred event and that people want... Because there's never again that moment where you're with them right after they've died. You know, that's... You can't recapture that moment, that hour or two, you know. Um, and uh, you also don't have to spend a lot of money for a burial anymore. You know, um, people, some people like to, but you don't have to. There are choices around caskets, um, how much the fu- you can shop around for funeral homes. Um, there's a green cemetery in Mill Valley where you can be put directly into the ground in a shroud. Which is, and not even have a tombstone. You can have a rock or nothing. It's a place called Fernwood. Um, or uh, people don't know that you can be buried without being embalmed. You know, so just like we have uh, myths and facts around death and dying, the tr- same is true around uh, uh, what they call postmortem care. I guess my question was about the time when that when my when my father died uh, he he was in Kansas City and um, we were told that his body had to be disposed of within 24 hours or something like that after death and if there was a longer delay because we wouldn't have a funeral and all that sort of thing he had to be embalmed. Interesting. 
So, no, so there was a there was a 24-hour window, and after that, no matter what we did, we had him cremated, but he still had to be embalmed. It, it could have been about the uh, condition of his body. It could have been about state laws. If people are transported, they have to be embalmed. You know, you can't transport. A, a body needs to be embalmed if, let's say, you're being shipped to the cemetery plot in Florida where your family is. You know, so there are some instances. And what I'd like to tell people is, uh, get some information if you know this is coming before you need the information. Please. A couple of years ago, I went to a very interesting conference on end-of-life care done, I believe it was the Transpersonal Psychology Institute or whatever. Um, there is a movement these days more towards keeping the body in the home. If you're poor, you can make your own casket. Um, some people would make it out of wood, and then all the family members would be involved in painting it. Mm -hmm. And, again, as you yeah. said, keeping the body on dry ice. Yeah. And then um, there are a couple of, I think there's it's also... Kind of, it's a, like a home funeral, like a home birth. You know, you can do a lot yourself. Right. And there's and two women up in Sonoma that kind of teach about this, and there's a link to them on our website at Zen Hospice. Right. Yeah. They're neat ladies. And they even have people that are dying work on painting their own uh, casket. You know, where the whole family makes a collage of photos, and the caskets are made out of cardboard. You know, so they're inexpensive. Um, I just wanted to say that um, I had an experience with a uh, a funeral home, and uh, it's just that I happen to know the rule is that that body belongs to the relative. So if you are um, a direct relative and say they refuse to allow you to sit with the body and they demand that you, you know, because they said the next people are coming in or I don't know, and they won't give you four hours, um, you can uh, say that body belongs to me by knowing this, that it's the law. You okay, can most put up a fuss, or you can also find a funeral home that will bring the body to your home. Well, I threatened to remove, uh, you know, I was going to crank up the air conditioning in the car. Did you see Little Miss Sunshine? Yeah. Where the family so, just takes the body? So, so the, by knowing that that body belongs to you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they can't just yeah. tell you you can't spend a few hours. Right. And um, for other people, this is not what they want. You know, like um, other people are like, I want nothing to do with it. I want to go home. I want to write a check. You know, I do want other people to handle this. And so, again, the, the point is here to understand that we have choices and that everybody's entitled for enough information to make their own decision. And um, if somebody wants a $30,000 casket, then that's what they want. You know, wouldn't be my choice, but so what? It's not my money, you know. Please. Minor, but as long as we're on the subject of um, technical details about after death, my husband died at home and I was with him and I did have hospice for the last couple of weeks and I'm most grateful. Um, I called the company that is does very inexpensive cremations 
that's what he would have wanted. But the hospital bed that the hospice people had had brought in so that he would be more comfortable and so it would be easier to bathe him and care for him was still sitting in my bedroom. And it was Thanksgiving Day, so Friday morning, I mean, I had the body was taken away the night after he died during the day. And there was this hospital bed staring at me when I woke up the next morning. So I called the hospice folks. I mean, I called the folks that brought the bed, and they said, well, pick it up on Monday. So I called the hospice nurse and yelled and screamed and cried, can't you do something to get this thing out of here? Because of how it was affecting me. I didn't think I'd survive the weekend, and it was gone. So... Stick up for yourself, yell and scream and cry, Um, but watch out that if it's not convenient for the people who delivered the bed (laughs) to take it away. Can I ask, what what did it represent to you? What was hard about being with it? His his illness, his death. Um, I I. I wanted and knew I needed as fast as possible to get my head back around this wonderful, living, magnificent human being that I had been in love with for 30 years. <laughs> and this detritus of the minor detail of the mechanics of how he spent his last couple of weeks. I mean, it's. I mean, I could get it out of my mind, but the longer it stayed in my face, the more difficult it was going to be. It was making it impossible for me to move forward, on, sure. you know, even on my grief. Sure. So it sounds like uh, you were grieving and remembering him as a whole person, oh, and yeah. this represented his illness yeah. and his decline. And it was at the foot of my bed. Yeah, and it was right there, sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your story. What was his name? Michael. Michael. Thank you. I I don't know if you spoke about this earlier because I missed the first hour. Did you talk about the history of the Zen Hospice Project? I did. Okay, I'll ask you afterwards. <laughs> We're about to take a break. You can ask me on the break. Can I ask a quick question? Are, are you going to talk about um, someone wanting to get involved in the Zen Uh huh. Yeah, sure. I'm going to talk a little bit about our programs when we come back from our break. Sure. But we can't go anywhere until I read you another poem. Because it's the way I like to care for people and engage our creative self and the, the world of art with this difficult territory of death and dying and, and grief. So when we start talking about caregiving, it's very easy to start judging ourselves because we're talking about our limits, we're seeing our limits, that I'm impatient or judgmental or cranky or I have a bad attitude or I don't trust doctors or... Um, Oh, 
my loved one's gone. Now you're telling me I should have been more quiet. I wasn't quiet. You know, like we can kind of start really judging ourselves. So uh, here's another poem from Mary Oliver called Wild Geese. Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, Announcing your place in the family of things. Lovely, huh? Yeah, great. No. Uh, it's not in the handout I gave. It's in the booklets that are for sale in the back, or you can just find it online if you Google Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. <laughs>